Well, friends, good morning. We've now come to the third of a series um, that I'm calling Seeing God. My name's Dave Bast. I'm a former pastor here many years ago. Uh, and I'm kind of a summer intern, actually, <laughs> right now. So we're, we're doing this six-part series, uh, each one of which looks at one of the really remarkable visions of God, three from the Old Testament, three from the New, all of which focus on Jesus. And the, the point of the whole exercise is so well expressed in a little prayer by a, a 13th century bishop called Richard of Ch Chichester who said, uh, Lord, to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly, and follow thee more nearly day by day. That's the point. So today, uh, we've come to, this is not gonna work on that. I'll try it there. I might need it. We'll see. Today, we've come to Ezekiel chapter one, and I found myself last week thinking and asking, my, why did I choose this one? Wow, <laughs> this is, the word that came to my mind was phantasmagoric for this chapter. Jennifer, who's much more in tune with contemporary linguistic trends, said uh, to her it was trippy. So I'm gonna recommend that you do something a little different today. We're not gonna put it up on the screen. And don't look at the Pew Bible yet. You can later. But just let it happen as you hear it. And try to imagine what in the world Ezekiel saw. Uh, spoiler alert, there's wheels within wheels here. But to introduce it, I'd like to read a quote from uh, an Old Testament scholar, British scholar named John Taylor from his commentary on Ezekiel. This is how he describes um, Ezekiel's experience. And he points out just before this that it's very similar to Isaiah's. Last week we saw Isaiah, if you were with us uh, or if you're watching online, uh, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth is full of your glory. I am undone, I'm ruined, I'm toast, was his reaction. He felt himself almost disintegrating in the presence of God. And Taylor points out that amongst other things, God's holiness means his complete otherness. He's just so different from us that we can hardly abide his presence. And then he goes on to say this, the vision of the Lord riding upon his chariot throne typified this sense of otherness and majesty. It was unutterably splendid, mysteriously intricate, superhuman and supernatural, infinitely mobile, but never earthbound, all-seeing and all-knowing, 
This is how God revealed himself to Ezekiel, not by propositions regarding his character, but in personal encounter. This was the setting for his commission to prophesy, and from it he carried with him through the whole of his ministry a sense of awe and holy fear. It is the true prophet's hallmark in every generation. The false prophet, and I might add the false follower, can chatter glibly about God because he's never met him. The man of God comes out from his presence indelibly marked with the glory of his Lord. So let's listen. Ezekiel chapter one. In my 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day, while I was among the exiles by the Chibar River, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzai, by the Chibar River in the land of the Babylonians. There the hand of the Lord was on him. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud of flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Now, their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion and on the left side, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading, um, spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Whenever, wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. As I looked at the creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheel. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel, intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. 
The wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. The rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the living creatures rose from the ground, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go, and the wheels would rise along with them, because the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. When the creatures moved, they also moved. When the creatures stood still, they also stood still. When the creatures rose from the ground, the wheels rose along with them, because the living spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. Under the vault, their wings were stretched out, one toward the other, and each one had two wings covering its body. When the creatures moved, I heard the sound of their wings, like the roar of rushing waters, like the voice of the Almighty, like the tumult of an army. When they stood still, they lowered their wings. Then there came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with their lowered wings. Above the vault over their head was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli, and high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I fell face down, and I heard the voice of one speaking. This indeed is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jennifer. Yeah, wow, huh? So a little bit of history, um, just to begin. We know the exact date, Ezekiel tells us. It was, to translate it into our terms, July 31st, 593 B.C. So uh, there were a series of deportations from the city of Jerusalem right around the year 600 and shortly thereafter uh, when the Babylonians came to dominate the city. So uh, uh, over 100 years earlier, the northern kingdom of Israel, if, if you know your Bible history, don't worry if you don't, you could look it up, there's charts and stuff, um, had been pretty much wiped out by the Assyrians, the previous world power in that area. Um, but Judah was preserved and protected during the time of King Hezekiah and during the ministry of the prophet Isaiah. So we have these four great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and between them, they cover the span from before the exile, right through the exile to after. Now, uh, Babylon has destroyed Assyria. They're the big bully. They're the world power. Uh, and they're threatening Judea, which very sensibly 
surrendered to the Babylonians around the year 603 or so, and the Babylonians sort of culled the cream of Jewish society and took them back to Babylon to train them to be administrators in their empire. That's what happened to Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They put in place a, a client king named Eliakim who rather misguidedly decided to assert some independence. The Babylonians came back, took Eliakim off the throne, took another harvest of talented uh, members of the elite in Jerusalem, which included Ezekiel, brought them all back to Babylon. Eliakim lived out the rest of his days as a prisoner in Babylonia. They put a, a different king uh, named Zedekiah on the throne who very foolishly decided to rebel and, and uh, he thought if he linked up with the Egyptians, he would have enough power to break free from Babylon's yoke and uh, Nebuchadnezzar came back in the year 587 and obliterated the city. Killed many of the people, took most of the remainder back with him to Babylon. Judah was finished. So, Jeremiah prophesied just before that final catastrophe and during it, and he kept warning the people. He was in the city of Jerusalem. This is what, and they, didn't want to hear what Jeremiah had to say. He's known traditionally as the weeping prophet because of the burden that he bore. Uh, just bad news, bad news. Ezekiel had been taken to Babylon during that interim period. So five years after Eliakim was dethroned and removed with a number of people, that is to say, 593, Ezekiel experiences a call. And he does so by the midst of this really spectacular vision. It starts, what did he see exactly? It's, it's a little hard to, to tell, but here's, I think, the best reconstruction of it based on uh, uh, some commentary uh, teaching. So it starts with a storm. He's looking to the north and he sees a tremendous thunderstorm approaching. Dark, billowing clouds, thunder and lightning and the roaring of the wind, scary enough as it is. And then out of the midst of the storm, shining in light, emerge what he calls four living creatures. They, they have human forms that is to say they've got two legs and a waist and a chest and a head and hands, he mentions the hands and so presumably there were arms to which the hands could be attached. But they had four wings, two for flying, two to cover their bodies reverently, modestly. And four faces. So a human face in front, the face of a lion on the right side of their head, 
the face of an ox on the left and the face of an eagle in back. And it's suggested that their wings were outstretched and touched uh, the wings of a creature on either side. And I think the best way to picture this is picture a hollow square with one living creature on each side. So there's one here, there's one here, there's one here, and there's one here. And as Ezekiel looks at it, of course, they're all facing outward. He could see all four faces because the one right in front shows the human face. The one with his right side turned shows the lion. The other, the ox, and the one facing away from him has the eagle. Little side note, those four faces reappear in Revelation 4. If I have time, I might read that because there's living creatures there also, four of them. And if they're not exactly identical to these, they're they're close cousins. Uh, They owe a lot to one another. And those four faces were taken up in early Christian iconography to symbolize the four evangelists. So Matthew is the gospel with the human face. Mark is the lion. If you've ever gone to Venice, um, Mark is the patron saint of the city of Venice and the cathedral known as San Marco, and there's a huge lion in the square there. That's the symbol of Venice. Luke is the ox, and John the farthest seeing, the keenest eyed of the four evangelists is the gospel of the eagle. What do they mean here uh, associated with these four living creatures as Ezekiel calls them, and John also calls them four living creatures? They seem to symbolize the creation because uh, to the Hebrew mind, human beings were the crown of the creation. The lion was the greatest of the wild beasts. The ox was the greatest of the domesticated animals, the cattle of the field, and the eagle, of course, was king of the birds. So so these four living creatures form a square. They have wheels associated with them, intersecting wheels probably, like uh, the NIV translates. The point is uh, mobility and versatility And the spirit, the spirit of the living creatures is also in the wheels, so the wheels go wherever the living creatures want them to go. They're they're not apparently physically connected. There's no axle mentioned. What kind of axle would work anyway? I, I think of it as a drone. It's sort of a biblical equivalent of a drone, a big drone, powerful. And the whole point is it can go anywhere. And it does, it's darting like lightning, here, there. They don't have to turn to change direction. They can go here and then they can go there. And they can go up and they can go down. And when they go up, Ezekiel says, the noise of their wings was like a, it was like Niagara. (laughs) Uh, It was like an army in battle or on the march. It was a roaring sound. And above 
the four living creatures, again, somehow they were supporting this, although there's no mention made of physical contact. It's like the wheels. Some sort of spiritual connection. There's what's, what's called a canopy here. The word is the same word used for the firmament in Genesis in the creation story, and it literally just means a, a beaten piece of metal, although in this case it's described as what, topaz? <laughs> it's like the Sea of Crystal, also in Revelation 4, this flat surface. That's same, same idea. And commentaries suggest that we should think of it as a kind of platform on which the throne of God is resting. And as Ezekiel tries to describe what God looked like, words really begin to fail him. Kind of like fire, kind of like, he looked kind of like a human form, but above his waist it was all fire and below his waist it was all bright and fire and there was a kind of a glow like a rainbow in the heavens after the rain, this, this luminous, numinous quality. And this, he says, was, how does he put it? The appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I just can't get any closer than that, he said. It, it, it's the appearance of the likeness. It's kind of, that's as close as I can get. It's a chariot. You see, this isn't just a throne, it's mobile, it's autonomous, it goes everywhere. It's the Lord of hosts, that's what that phrase actually means. Lord of hosts means Yahweh of the armies of Israel. Uh, I was reading recently a sermon by Neil Planinga I'll refer to it a little bit later, I'll quote from it, but I love the title, God on the Loose, was his title, God on the Loose. This is God on the Loose, and he's armed and dangerous, friends. So the question is, what does it mean? What's it, what's it all about? Well, Let's talk about glory a little bit. The glory of the Lord, the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. I have a friend who was telling me about a seminary assignment she had where she had to define glory, the glory of the Lord. And this friend, oh, all right, it was Becca, uh, <laughs> said that she, sorry, but this is great. The definition she came up with was the visible representation of the presence of God. I think that's it, isn't it? Visible representation of the presence of God. And you see it running throughout scripture. When glory appears, it means God is there. So Moses finishes the tabernacle at the end of Exodus and in chapter 40 he describes the dedication of the tabernacle, this elaborate tent 
where the Lord is to be worshiped and where the ark, which represents his presence, is placed in the Holy of Holies. And the glory of the Lord, the Shekinah, the visible, fiery, bright, shining light of the glory of God fills the tabernacle. The same thing happens many years later, centuries later, when King Solomon dedicates this great temple in Jerusalem that he's built. The glory of the Lord fills the place like a cloud of fire and people can't get close because God is there. And that's, I think, the first point that Ezekiel wants us to understand. God is there. The the significant thing is where it happens. It's in Babylonia. Not Jerusalem, not the Holy Land. God is there with his people in exile. You know, the thing about the ancient world is that almost everybody had an indelible sense that gods were local and tribal. There were many gods, and the gods of one nation belonged in that nation, and the gods of another nation belonged in that nation, and gods didn't cross the border, so to speak, from one place to another. Uh, I was just reading a a really interesting little story in the book of 1 Kings. It's in 1 Kings 20 if you want to read it, but it happened in the northern kingdom of Israel when Ahab was the king, Now, how's your Bible knowledge? Any of you heard of Ahab? Uh, Ahab was the worst of the worst. His wife was Jezebel. Ahab was hands down the wickedest king in the history of Israel. And yet, when the Syrian army invaded, God gave him a victory over these invading Syrians. Not us Syrians now, Syrians. They were like the B team. Uh, So you know, Israel could have a chance against them. So the, the Syrians, under their king, a guy named Ben-Hadad, got together and said, wow, we, we kind of got a bloody nose going up there and, and attacking those Israelites. So Ben-Hadad calls together his national security team, you know, all his advisors, and they, they gather together. What are we going to do? And the, his advisors tell him, well, you know what? Here's the reason. We went up and fought them on their territory. Their God is a God of the hills. If we can get them to come down and attack us on the plain, why, we'll whip them, you know, five ways to Saturday because their God has no power down in our territory. So let's do that. And God appears to Ahab, this bad king, and he says, you know what, Ahab, not for you, but for my name's sake, you go down and attack them in the plains, and I'll show them who's a god of the hills. And that's the point here. Even in exile, even in Babylon, the Lord is reigning. He's enthroned over the whole creation. And if he's even there, folks, it means he's even here. Whatever you may be going through, 
however dark it may seem, however painful, however absent it might seem, he's there. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Do you know these wonderful verses from Isaiah 43? But now this is what the Lord says. He who created you, Jacob, he who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Since you were precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you, I will give nations in exchange for you and peoples in exchange for your life. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. God's glory is his presence. You could also flip that around and say God's presence is glory. Did you notice Ezekiel's reaction? I love this. <laughs> he sees this. He sees the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God and he falls down like he's dead. I fell on my face. Here's, here's a wonderful passage from Neil Planiga, that sermon I mentioned. People sometimes talk as if meeting God would be like meeting a friend for coffee. People think that meeting God would be like meeting Mr. Rogers. The truth is that meeting God would be more like getting electrocuted. And then he goes on. God slays in order to save. And the desire to meet God is therefore a sort of death wish. Our addictions have to die. Our pride and envy have to die. Our terrible despair has to die. All that drags us down has to die. Only then can we rise, dress up in the virtues of Christ, and step out into the sunshine like Jesus walking out of his tomb. Death comes first, and then comes life. And life for us means glory. <laughs> Folks, do you realize that? We will see his glory for real. The last night of his earthly life, in his great high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus prayed that his followers would be one so that the world would know that I am in you, Father, and you are in me. And then he expanded his prayer out to include all who would someday come to believe because of their witness. And at the end he said, Father, I pray that they may see my glory, the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. That's a prayer that's going to be answered. We will see his glory. We already start to see it now. 
Paul, I, I think I mentioned this in the, the sermon on Moses, you know, and veiling, the veiling of the face that as Moses came down out of the mountain, the glory of God so infused his face that he shone with glory and the people were spooked by it and so he put a veil. And, and Paul says, Paul kind of riffs on that in 2 Corinthians 3 by saying, you know, there's a kind of veil in, over the eyes of people who don't believe when they hear the gospel. But when you turn to the Lord, when one turns to the Lord, he says, the veil is removed. And we behold him changed from glory into glory, from one degree of glory into another, as we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where we're headed. Ezekiel falls flat on his face. And that's not quite the end, though. <laughs> what, what is the end? God says to him, get up, <laughs> get up. It's not time for glory yet. That's coming. Meanwhile, I've got a job for you. So get up and get on with it. Amen? Let me close, friends, with this wonderful prayer of St. Augustine. Eternal God, who are the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, the strength of the wills that serve you. Grant us so to know you that we may truly love you and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom. Amen.